By the time I get to Phoenix, she'll be rising. She'll find the note I left hanging on her door. She'll laugh when she reads the part that says I'm leaving. Cause I've left that girl so many times. Welcome to the Black Cast, a very special worldwide Black Cast event, simulcast. It's not just the Black Cast. I'm joined via Skype by my pal, past guest, and no doubt future guest, Brad Morin, all the way down under from Australia. What's up, brother man? Welcome to uh, the Cast Dice Podcast, or Old Man Morin Presents Storytime. Uh, it's like we're doing two podcasts at one time. Amazing. I, th- I think it's like we're doing two podcasts at one time, because we are doing two podcasts at one time. You know, you were kind enough to invite me on the storytelling podcast, and I was like, oh yeah, that sounds like fun. And then it took long enough where I was like, hey, wait a minute. If I go into the studio, instead of just using my little headset for Skype at home, I can use this as a Blackcast as well. Because one thing I think Blackcast Nation would be interested in is hearing some thoughts about the stories we will discuss today. And why waste a good story? I mean, story time is what podcasting is all about. So now for my listeners for the show or for Blackcast listeners who are listening, one of the big things about the podcast that I do is to give something, give people something to listen to when they're building their toy soldiers or they're painting their starships, their vehicles, whatever it is that they're doing for their war games. And one of the things that I love listening to is a good story. Uh, And so the the whole idea of Cast Dice Presents Storytime with Old Man Morin is that you can listen to a good story while, uh, while you're hobbying. Uh, Christian, sorry for that little segue. Take us away. What are we talking about today? Because you're kind of an expert on something that I love, and I'm really glad that we're going to talk about. Yes, that topic is self-love. I am indeed an expert on it, and uh, Brad is still only a novice. No, we are talking about what I would say unequivocally, and it's not even like, oh, it just may be arguably. No, the greatest comic book storyline of all time. We are talking about Marvel Comics' The Dark Phoenix Saga, which ran from Uncanny X-Men numbers 129 through 137 in, well, they have cover dates of 1980. It actually started in 1979. And it's sort of this legendary epic story that when you look at comic books now, it won't seem that groundbreaking. It's not that different. But this, especially this early run of Uncanny X-Men, is so different than what comics were. You know, I mean, it's spacefaring and it, there's just all sorts of duplicitousness going on. And they, uh, you know, interchangeable characters and some of the big, biggest characters of X-Men lore are introduced during this story. And right. it's obviously it also culminates in what might be the single most important incident in the X-Men lore, which was undone about five years later, but it was still very significant, and a lot of things grow from the fact that this happened. And if you don't know the Dark Phoenix saga and you're interested, I would say press pause, take the time. You can get it digitally, except for the last issue. 
the first several parts are all only 17 pages because that's what comics were at that point. So you can really get through it easily in an afternoon. And I think if you like comics and you haven't read it, I don't quite understand how you haven't read it. So this would be the time to do so. And at this point, anything we talk about, about what happens in the story, will probably be spoilers. But if you've read the X-Men at all, you probably, know, you probably know some of these things happened if you read any X-Men comics that took place from 1981 onward. That's right. And it is such a rich story. I mean, you can't just cover that many issues of a comic book. I mean, we're talking effectively eight to nine issues. There is some people talked about 138 also being part of the, the saga. I guess it's the mop up. Yeah, I mean, 138 is definitely a coda. It's like an epilogue. It is significant in its own right, but it's only just it's just the way that 137 ends. It's almost like you need 138 to catch your breath. It's not technically part of the story, but we'll talk a little bit about it because something significant happens there as well. We're going to be talking sort of the general story arc, the introduction of the characters, as Christian said, the implications, how it affects, I mean, comics today, the comic movies that have been out. Uh, I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of this, but given that we're only talking, I mean, we're talking nine really significant issues of X-Men uh, or of any comic, you can't really do that in an hour and a half and the implications and really get the frame by frame coverage. If you really want that, and uh, I am a little hesitant to plug a show that Christian doesn't know about on his podcast, but um, The Danger Room, the X-Men comics podcast um, if you look that up in iTunes, they do a frame-by-frame -frame coverage of every single aspect of these comic books. And you can probably listen to that in about 11 hours if you really want. Um, this is a, more of an overview and a discussion of the story. Um, would you agree, Christian? Yeah, I would agree. It's definitely an overview. We'll at least spend you know a couple minutes on each of the issues because each of them does have something really important that happens inside of it. Yeah, I think for the most part, you're right. It's not going to be like OPP. We're not going to take it frame by frame. But that's right. also, uh, sort of on a, on a more cursory level, there's a Twitter account that I follow that's just at Classic X-Men. It's not an official account. It's just somebody takes memorable panels from Uncanny X-Men stories, and they're going chronologically. So right now, as we're recording this, they go a little bit back and forth, but they're right around X -Men, Uncanny X-Men number 200, which is right in the sweet spot of when I was reading. And they'll feature things like the miniseries X-Men and Fantastic Four. They'll feature X-Men annuals. So... Any day, any given day, when I look at my Twitter feed, I'm seeing panels or covers, just memories from some of these comics. So that's not specifically about this, although if you go far enough back in their feed, you'll see all about the Dark Phoenix saga. And it, it's kind of like a, a nice way to just have a little reminder for people who are familiar with these comics, who, let's be honest, that's who we're trying to appeal to by doing this episode, is we're working under the assumption that the majority of people have already read this comic. Comic, whether they read it 20 plus years ago like I did or they read it you know a little bit more recently definitely well Christian for people who have not listened to my pod or people who have listened to my podcast and maybe not yours they know that I'm a huge fan of the G.I. Joe comics from the early 80s and that was though I read a few uh, interesting comics back in the day Team America the the biking one not the, not, uh, not not world the police yes no not that one um I I picked up superhero comics a little late in the game. Um, when I picked up uh, superhero comics, I started sort of right before the mutant massacre in X-Men, um, and I was reading Captain America, Iron Man, things like that at the time. Um, sure. And I, I just, I loved them. But you came at it from a, a very different angle. I mean, you were also a Marvel reader, but um, would you just 
maybe very briefly tell us a little bit about your comic pedigree for my listeners. Sure. Um, and I, I just, I, I guess, explain. I was only in a couple years before you, because you're talking about the Mutant Massacre, which basically starts in Uncanny X-Men number 210, and I think it runs through 212, uh, yeah. although 213, I think, has the introduction of Psylocke, and I know Sabretooth is in it, and sometimes I spout off facts like this, like Rain Man, just to kind of show off from my own self, just to see what I actually remember, but that being said, nice. I actually started reading Marvel Comics, I started reading the Star Wars comic book that Marvel did, which I think is unfairly much maligned at this point but there's some great stories in there none of them are even remotely canon but it was fun it look it kept us going as we waited for return of the jedi and then once return of the jedi ended there could very well have never been any more star wars stories so at least marvel for a few more years i think it was only about four more years they put out some issues and you know it was good to have that but my brother picked up a couple of superhero comics and right from the get-go, my favorite was always Spider-Man. I would read Marvel Tales featuring reprints of Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, Peter Parker's mm-hmm. Protective Spider-Man, Web Spider-Man. But my brother also read Uncanny X-Men. And I had the privilege of doing an interview on my show, The Black Cast. You can find it as Black Cast number 39. I did an interview with Chris Claremont and the longtime X-Men oh. writer. So wow. for anybody who has never heard that, which might include Brad, have have you never actually heard that episode of the Blackcast? No, I definitely have. I was more playing it for radio. I appreciate that because I'm like, wait, I, I feel like Brad would know this. So I did that and uh, I talked to him a little bit about this and I've told this story a few times. The first issue of Uncanny X-Men I read is Uncanny X-Men number 176. And this is very significant because it's sort of like we were talking about number 138. It's kind of like a let's catch our breath sort of issue. Not that much happens in it. It's... Cyclops and his new wife, Madeline Pryor, who later on turns out to be a clone of Jean Grey, super complicated, but that's the gist of it. And they're basically on their honeymoon and they encounter a giant squid. And there's like one page maybe that refers to other storylines that were going on. But uh, Uncanny X-Men number 175, sort of a lot happened. Mastermind was back and all these things were going on. And it's such an odd entry point in that series because it shouldn't have convinced you that you wanted to hear more or read more but i did and look at this point it was a little harder to keep up with comics that's why i ended up subscribing to so many of them just because of the geography of where my town was and uh i didn't get every issue from then on but uh within i'd say within about eight not eight months i was i was hooked and i bought the uncanny x-men every week every month actually because it came out monthly and it was just sort of that kind of storytelling i was like well this is just different and keep in mind that at this point i'm like eight i'm eight years old at this point and i'm reading some you know very complicated i mean look one thing that people give chris claremont a lot of grief over is just how wordy his scripts were and there's this penciler that he used this guy tom arzachowski and he writes so small because he needs to because there's so much dialogue but yeah that's how i got in on that and you know, Brad, whenever you start reading Uncanny X-Men in the 80s, there's this sort of this specter that looms overhead, this epic Dark Phoenix saga, this thing that happens, the fact 
that Jean Grey, the original founding member of the X-Men, dies at the end of the Uncanny X-Men number 137. And she does come back, like I alluded to, in 1985 Mm -hmm. for X-Factor. But until then, it's just sort of this tragic thing. And, you know, I liked X-Factor. I like a lot of the stories that happened after. I think Jean Grey's a great character. It definitely takes away from the tragedy of the Dark Phoenix saga. The fact that Jean Grey really only stayed dead for five years, and in the passage of comic book time, it was maybe even a year, I'm not even sure. Uh, Before we dive into the specifics, Brad, what are your thoughts about that? Is it at all kind of cheapened by the fact that Jean came back so soon thereafter? Yeah, just really quick. When you said you, I mean, I listened to the Chris Claremont interview a while ago. I mean, you had him on ages ago. And uh, though I enjoyed it, I didn't understand just how big Chris Claremont was to the entire X-Men. Like, I knew he he wrote a bunch, but I didn't realize he was the guy who wrote the Dark Phoenix saga. I didn't realize, I guess, that he wrote Days of Futures Past. I didn't realize that he wrote The Mutant Massacre. All of the big X-Men story arcs that have been done and movies that basically all come back to Chris Claremont. And I didn't realize it was him, which is kind of why I was going, oh, wow. Because now, of course, I've gone back and I've reread them all. I ordered them um, because I knew we were going to talk about them, and I was just reliving a lot of my childhood. And then, you know, in giant letters across the front of all of these graphic novels is Claremont. And then you said it now, and I was like, oh, my God, it's that guy. So anyway. Well, and but before, Uh before your thoughts on Gene, let me just sort of follow up on that. Chris Claremont started writing Uncanny X-Men with issue number 94. Now, the new X-Men were introduced in Giant Size X-Men, which is so funny because I'm wearing an X-Men t-shirt just because I was excited to do this show today, and it's the cover of Giant Size X-Men. Before I came here, I dropped off a package at UPS, and... Uh, the guy said, hey, cool shirt. Have you read that story? I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, it's not that great. I'm like, no, actually, it's not that great. The great stuff is what comes afterwards. Chris Claremont starts writing with number 94, and then onward, it's all of the things I'm talking about. The fact that there's a, a spacefaring element. There's uh, there's so much that the X-Men do that superheroes and superhero teams didn't really do on this grand scale. Uh, I, I think I'm sort of selling short some of the Jack Kirby Fantastic Four stories. They definitely did some of this stuff but it was just month to month issue to issue you didn't really know what you were getting and chris claremont wrote every x-men uncanny x-men for 17 years so from 1975 to 1991 and then he left he, he came back i think a couple times but all the stories that are the basis for movies and tv shows everything comes from his reign over the X-Men. And the animated series did an adaptation of the Dark Phoenix saga. And it was so close to the scripts that Chris Claremont has a story by credit on the animated series episodes because they just were like, well, what are we going to deviate from this from? This is what's going to make a great story. And when you deviate from it, that's how you get X-Men 3, The Last Stand. When you deviate from the greatest comic book story of all time you can turn it into something that's just really boring and a mess and that's exactly what brett radner did so anyway that is a little bit of a tangent but back to my earlier question do you feel like gene gray coming back five years after she dies in uncanny x-men 137 cheapens that tragic self-sacrifice there's a couple things i want to talk about there that i mean she was such a sweetheart to the marvel universe 
I mean, so many people knew who Marvel Girl was. And the fact that she died uh, was was a really big blow to a lot of X-Men and Marvel readers in general. I mean, we sort of take it for granted now that we live in a digital age that we can go back. We can get the graphic novel. We can read uh, comic books online. We can catch up and talk about these things on social media. But, I mean, we're talking about, as you say, a story that happened in the 1980s. Uh, and so to have a character that was so integral to one of Marvel Comics' biggest comics uh, at that point, the X-Men, to have a character, even though she had kind of come and gone a little bit um, as far as with the new team and um, going up into space. I mean, I guess we'll talk about a little bit about how Phoenix is born and that kind of thing. Sure. I mean, she died. Staying dead for five years in the comic world at that point was an eternity. Um, you didn't, you couldn't really go back unless you're reading your back issues. Um, and the community wasn't there to really um, discuss it other than at the local level. Um, and so, yes, it does definitely kind of cheapen her death to come back. Um, but, I mean, hashtag comics, it kind of happens anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I just think given the time and the place where comics were at at the time, being gone as long as she was, was massive. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, the fact that they brought Phoenix back several times at this point has really kind of cheapened this story a little bit. Um, but if you kind of ignore the later stuff, um, I mean, Rachel as Dark Phoenix 2, um, the one that shows up in Days of Futures Past, uh, she's a fantastic character. I really like her. I know a lot of X-Men fans don't always. Um, I, I really enjoyed her and the story arc that she was a part of. And I, I liked that it was kind of sort of Phoenix Light or this other Phoenix. Um, but when they actually start bringing Phoenix Phoenix back in the 90s, um, that's where I go, no thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm really an 80s kid, and I think Chris Claremont did a wonderful job. It's sort of, as you say, the grand, I mean, clearly this story arc, we knew how it was going to end. I mean, clearly Phoenix was going to die at the end. I mean, we can say that looking back in retrospect. And throughout this entire story arc, it's her building, building, building to this crescendo. Uh, and I think that was a wonderful way to, as I was talking about earlier, sort of see off this sweetheart character. And I'm not just saying sweetheart character because she's a woman. She, I mean, there were other massive fan favorites at the time. Uh, Wolverine, of course. Uh, Cyclops, of course, was, you know... <laughs> The jerky leader of the team, uh, but wasn't he even was he even jerky at that point? No, um, uh, by my estimation, Cyclops was actually sort of a very lovable Peter Parker, maybe you know that sort of character. He was a very Captain America, very buttoned down, very mm -hmm. straight edge. To me, he only becomes a jerk in Uncanny X Men number two hundred one when he decides that he is going to leave his pregnant wife, Madeline, who, yes, is a clone of Jean Grey, but he yep. doesn't know that at this point because he hears that Jean is back. So he leaves his pregnant wife behind. And honestly, I would like to talk to Chris Claremont again because I was thinking about this. I, I've thought about this a lot in the time since then. I feel like that's not where that story was headed, but Marvel decides where we're going to have a team with the original X-Men. We need Cyclops back. And by the way, Jean Grey is going to be back. And... I wonder where that was headed because to me, he he's just not that guy. But I mean, obviously he, he is because that's something that happened 33 years ago. But 
it just was very inconsistent with who he was. So no, I don't think he was a jerk at this point. But to your point, that Jean Grey was sort of like one of the one of the first ladies of the Marvel universe, you know, because you had you had her, you had Sue Storm, the Invisible Girl, mm-hmm. later later Invisible Woman, and maybe Janet Van Dyne, the Wasp. And honestly, like those three are kind of it. Not that there weren't other female characters, not that there weren't even female heroes, but those were your main characters, you know? Uh, those were the main women who were parts of teams that had been around since Marvel started in the 60s. And uh, the idea that they killed her, and look, this was at a time period where if you died, you stayed dead. You know, less than a decade before this, they killed off Gwen Stacy. They killed off the Green Goblin. And they did stay dead for a very long time you know, clones come back and things like that. Even Jean Grey, there was a clone. But, you know, characters stayed dead, and that was kind of an edict that they had that they stuck to. But then, you know, finances get in the way, business and all of that. And so I think that, you know, that's a little bit of the legacy, but to what you were saying before, Brad, you ignore a lot of what came after. I really haven't read comic books on any kind of semi-regular basis. I haven't read Marvel superhero comic books in the 2000s. So right around 1999, I was still reading, and I've talked about this on the podcast. I had a box of comics that was just piling up, and I realized I had a whole year's worth, and I was only really reading X-Men at this point. I had a year's worth that I hadn't read, and honestly, at this point, I still haven't read. And I was like, all right, well, if I'm not reading them, I should stop buying them. And then, you know, before I knew it, I wasn't reading anymore. And, you know, part of it had to do with... I was actually technically a grown-up now. I mean, by some accounts, I'm not a grown-up now. But I had a full jo- a full-time job, and I wasn't. I didn't have the amounts of time. Even in college, I had plenty of time to read comic books. Let's not pretend that you're that busy in college. You know, there's plenty right. of time for comic books, especially since I don't play video games. So I had plenty of times for comic books in college. So there's a lot for me to ignore. And when I read about things that have happened after the fact. In the Marvel Universe, in the X-Men comics, in the Spider-Man comics, I'm like, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. You know, I think I've missed some great stories, but on the whole, you know, it's not like 18 strong years of storytelling. And, you know, you fu- it's funny, Brad, I'll, and obviously I'll stop filibustering in a second, but you talk about being an 80s kid, and I'm definitely an 80s kid. It's sort of very fitting that Chris Claremont stops writing the X-Men essentially at the dawn of the 90s, 1991. Now, I continue yeah. to read at that point, but it wasn't the same, you know? I mean, there yeah. were some good stories, cool characters like Bishop, and we had Cable, and, you know, we had all this stuff, and it was good, it was very entertaining, and they're going to make some good movies out of it, but... The stories with the most heart and the things that you have the strongest emotional connection to, that's the stuff from the 70s and 80s. That's that's the way I feel about it anyway. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, sure, you have the introduction of Deadpool and, as you were saying, Cable and Gambit and a whole bunch of other characters in the 90s. But my wife is somewhat <laughs> annoyed at me at times because I listen to uh, 80s music fairly religiously. Um, I read 80s comic books over and over again, and, you know, the same books I read, you know, it's, uh, Neuromancer. I, I read a lot of stuff from back in the day. I watch, I watch a lot of television shows um, that are about those things, Stranger Things, um, you know, the toys that define us, that documentary series. And I, I think um, my rereading these comics uh, from my childhood uh, have really just added to my wife's... <laughs> <laughs> argument that I should really, you know, knock that off. But it, it, the more I look at it, like I just, the stuff that was going on in, in the time of our childhood was pretty special. Um, now, not to say that there isn't, there hasn't been special stuff since, but um, as you say, it uh, for me, I stopped reading comic books about the same time 
Um, I weirdly and luckily ended up buying one of the first appearances of Deadpool by accident um, right before I quit reading comics and realized I had it. And so it's in a bag at my parents' house, boarded, bagged and boarded. Um, and one of these days it might be worth something. It probably is now. But uh, yeah, that sort of was the end for me. And I mean, G.I. Joe was always my favorite comic, um, Captain America and all those. So they, they sort of hit a tonal shift. And we talked about on, I think it was your show, that when Captain America, Steve Rogers, kind of left the role, um, that was kind of a special time for the comic for me and he came back but then that whole civil war thing and bleh. anyway yeah moving on <laughs> let's let's talk I, I i'm getting off on a tangent let's talk dark phoenix so we 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 did mention several times that some mainstay x-men characters uh even some notable b-grade ones um second string x-men who later become primary characters in other series are introduced in this series we also have a criminal organization uh, that has shown up and a lot of alien races that have shown up many places since including uh the movies so let's get straight into this because it's not just the story of phoenix but it's a story of quite a lot of x-men uh lore sort of woven together so the story begins, um, as you say, in X-Men 129. A story that is titled God Spare the Child. As we move forward, I'll point out that I read these from my issues of classic X-Men, which were reprint series from 1989. And because uh, I, I have some of these issues, but I don't want to take them out of the bag because I'm, uh, I feel like my hands get too sweaty. But uh, I have them in front of me. And yes, that is definitely where it starts. And we may have a difference of opinion as to who some of these secondary, second-rate uh, X-Men characters are, but uh, if we have to throw down on a podcast, we will. Anyway, exactly. as you were, sir, what were you going to say next? Well, I was just going to say, so we start in Scotland, and um, the team's returning from fighting, uh, you know, some baddie who... Prometheus. Uh, is it Prometheus or Proteus? Proteus, you're right. I said, I said it wrong. You're right. It's definitely Proteus. So we have this um, story arc that's kind of... Thankfully, in comic books at that time, they, they were constantly nodding back to things that happened before. But whenever they did, um, they would cleverly give you a couple of panels of explanation, as you say, using the um, Chris Claremont lots of dialogue. And so um, as the, the, the plane is flying back, Jean Grey sort of has this um, mental uh, moment where she's flipped back in time mentally and she's starting to have this romantic fantasy, daydream almost, um, it's, except it seems real to her, with this character um, who looks debonair and all of this, uh, who happens to be, we find out later, a member of the Hellfire Club, who is mentally playing with her mind. And th at this point, Jean Grey is regular, quote unquote, Phoenix. Um, she's wearing the green and gold costume, and she's, you know, an up-powered version of the the character that we had known and loved before, who sort of came to life and became this creature after um, the X-Men's plane crashed in a previous issue. Um, Christian, I feel like I should hand this to you at this yeah, point. Yeah, well, that was I'm, in... I'm kind of butchering things. That was in Uncanny X-Men number 100, and uh, the way that it was sort of retconned a little bit is... Jean Grey, in order to save everyone, she's her actual body is put into a cocoon. This is how they explain away her returning, is that it's the Jean Grey taken from Uncanny X-Men 100, not the Jean Grey that died in Uncanny X-Men 137. But So there's this moment where she encounters the Phoenix Force, and that 
Phoenix character, it actually looks and acts and thinks it's Jean Grey, but as it was told a few years later, she's not Jean Grey. But as the stories were told at the time, Jean Grey becomes the Phoenix, and she's just way more powerful than Jean Grey ever was. Although Jean Grey always was powerful, she was so powerful that Professor Xavier had to sort of put some psychic dampeners into her mind because she was too powerful for her own good, basically. And in fact, I think when the series starts, in just it was just called X-Men, number one, I think she's just a telekinetic. She doesn't even have her telepathy until later. I could be wrong on that. So that's what we're getting. And the X-Men at this point, it's Cyclops, Phoenix, Storm, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, and Colossus. Uh, we see Banshee leave in this episode, this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I think he was a good character. He was a good supporting character. He never really comes back to prominence. We see him a few more times. He has a daughter named Siren who has the same powers. But we never really see that much more of Sean Cassidy. But... This issue features the return of Professor Xavier. And rereading this recently ahead of doing this podcast, I kind of forgot that this Professor Xavier is still really a hard ass and he becomes a lot more benevolent in the years to come. And maybe part of seeing what happens with Phoenix and what happens to Jean Grey, one of his original students, I think that that has some long-term impact on him because he is a much different character even five years later, ten years later, and I'm talking about real time ten years later, not comic book time. It's hard to figure out how much time actually passes. So that's very significant that he's back with the team and that sort of sets up where this story goes. It's very important that Professor Xavier is with them. Uh, and I think that because they're going to pick up some new friends along the way, Banshee, for lack of a better term, was really just dead weight at this point. I think that they felt like they'd done enough with that character. But this issue, Uncanny X-Men number 129, features the introduction of one of my favorite X-Men, Kitty Pride. Now, at this point, she is 13 and a half years old. She's very clear to point out she's 13 and a half, just realizing that she has the, her powers. And the X-Men go to recruit her and arriving at the same time is another character who makes her first appearance in this issue, the White Queen, Emma Frost. So the entire Hellfire Club makes their first appearance in this issue. And it's interesting to think about how it, the launch of the Hellfire Club really is part of the Dark Phoenix saga. You know, it, it's such a rich, well-defined group that it could easily have been on its own, but it's a part of this other huge story, you know? And uh, I think it's uh, it's very interesting that these things all converge. You know, Kitty Pride, who is a fan favorite X-Men. I don't know how many people she's their favorite, but she's on the team for a long time. She's on Excalibur, and in the present day, I know she leads one of the different factions of the X-Men. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is where we first meet her. And, uh, you know, so it's just... And we don't get that much of the Dark Phoenix saga here. It's the beginning of it. And this character that you alluded to, Jason Wingard, who is a member of the Hellfire Club, as we find out, ultimately, he's a very low-level, early X-Men villain, mastermind. And it's sort of an interesting story to read in the present day because of the fact that this guy's using his mind control powers of persuasion to basically make this woman love him. And, you know, there's so much discussion about assault and harassment in these things. And obviously it's still it was still a very real problem in 1980. But at the same time, 
it, I don't think was viewed the same way and it was talked about. So as you read through this and you read what happens to Jean, the way she reacts, I think is completely in standing with how even the noblest of superheroes would respond to this kind of, for lack of a better term, abuse. Would you agree, Brad? I definitely would. Um, when I was rereading this, and I mean, as a kid, that never, I mean, yes, the the the, the manipulation stuck with me, but rereading it, it really reminded me of um, the Netflix show Jessica Jones, where they took a very B-grade Alpha Flight character, the Purple Man, and they turned him into just this awful, harassing creature that um, became the 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 villain of that entire series, um, and profoundly uh, impacted the the mental health, the happiness of Jessica Jones, the character, uh, because of prolonged abuse. Uh, and I think that that series did a wonderful job of unpacking that in the, in the modern day. Uh, and but as you say, in the 1980s, you weren't getting the same amount of that, and so. I don't feel like that would have gone over in a comic book very well at the time. I don't think the, the social consciousness of the country maybe would, or the, the readers would have gotten that. But I really believe that um, we got there in the end with Jessica Jones. Did you make that comparison when you were watching slash reading? I did, yeah. And obviously in Jessica Jones, the TV series, the Purple Man is embodied as Kilgrave, played wonderfully by David Tennant. And I definitely agree. And look, I think the interesting thing about the difference between 1980 and 2000, well, 2017 when I read it, is the fact that it's really from Cyclops' point of view. Like, oh, look what this jerk is doing to his girlfriend. It's not... Hey, look what's happening to Gene. This is what Gene is having to go through right now. It's about, hey, somebody's trying to steal Cyclops' best girl. Why I oughta. It's not even badly told, and it's not even one of those things. Look, there's plenty of things through the runs of comic books where you have to look at it like it was a different time. Uh, I just think that it's a different time in the way that they approach the story. I don't think that Gene is particularly maligned in any way. I mean... You know, I think that it's a terrible thing she has to go through, but we do see her actually get revenge, for lack of a better term. So I, uh, I, I feel like it, it is told. But again, as I said, you had 17 pages to tell these stories. And by this point, the X-Men was a monthly title, but not long before this, it came out every other month. So you really didn't have a lot of time. And I think that's probably a big part of the Chris Claremont style of packing in so much story, so much dialogue into the course of 17 pages. But in any case, that is how the story begins to unfold. You know, the X-Men throughout the course of the Dark Phoenix saga, the interesting thing, we see them get their ass kicked a lot. So yeah. they get their ass kicked by Dark Phoenix, who is, of course, this ultra powerful, super alien consciousness makes sense. But they get taken down by like the thugs that the Hellfire Club hired. And some of the members of the Hellfire Club are not that impressive themselves and just constantly getting their their asses handed to them. But thankfully, they have Kitty Pride to save them. Uh, yeah. And the next issue, which if if you're ready to move on, we can talk about Uncanny X-Men number 130, which is the introduction of Dazzler. And I mentioned that right away because the title of the issue, Dazzler. And this is probably 
agreeably a sort of mid-level character, but now in the with the hindsight, the disco superstar who can turn sound into light, it's kind of a wonderfully kitsch, maybe a little outdated, but just a fantastic character. And this is the the height of Disco Dazzler before she joins the team and she has the blue uniform and the short hair. Uh, mm-hmm. This this is where it's at. This is the Dazzler that we all want. And again, she's not a major character in the Marvel Universe, but an important character in the expanded X-Men Universe. So the fact that she also is introduced throughout the course of the Dark Phoenix saga is also very interesting to me. Yeah, agreed. Um, just really quick, at the end of the last episode, just talking about how either A, comics have changed, or just a fun little side note, um, we see Wolverine um, in the shop right before the, they get their heads kicked in by thugs in power armor. Um, he's standing in a shop reading Penthouse magazine, and you just <laughs> think, is like, I, I kind of feel like... That wouldn't happen now, but maybe it would. It, um, it, it's just a fun little. Uh, he's wearing a, a suit and one that has one of those ties. He's got a bo- has... yeah. He's got a bolo tie and sort of like yeah. the the cowboy hat. It's a very distinctive look that Wolverine had, especially I think when John Byrne was drawing them. But yeah, the idea that he's reading Penthouse is actually very funny. Uh, you know, of course he's checking out the nudie mags while all this is going on. You know, we, you know, let let Storm sit down and have an ice cream sundae with the 13 and a half year old. And by the way, the fact that they go to basically the soda shop and have an ice cream sundae, I remember thinking, I'm like, even in 1979, this had to feel so outdated. You know, is, yeah. it, is it like the 50s and they went to the to the malt shop? I think it's very funny that they go and get the ice cream sundae, but, uh, you know, not even in a bad way. It's just funny because you're like, wow, that's so dated, but it should have been dated in 1979. And yes, that's a great yeah. example of the way things are changed because especially now, you know, Wolverine would be reading something that is owned by the the Disney family. You know, I mean, he'd be mm-hmm. he'd be reading, you know, a Star Wars magazine or, or something. You know, something that falls under that. But anyway, uh, yeah. And and when you reread comics that are this old, you see all sorts of little things like that. You know, uh, in in the seventies, they would throw the word "damn" around a lot, and you don't get that in the eighties to the extent that when some of these issues were reprinted for uncanny or for classic X-Men, they actually changed the lettering uh, because I, I had like a paperback version of an issue and, you know, they just, uh, they just would change the word damn. They would take hell out. And it's just funny. Cause it was such a, it just seemed like such a different time, but yet there they are in the malt shop. Yeah, exactly. With Wolverine reading penthouse in the background. Yeah. Um, yeah it's like way to recruit that 13 year old girl to your team. Yeah. Um, well, and then it ties in, what you were saying with the beginning of the next episode now or sorry next issue and i know that we're kind of spending a lot of time on the beginning but you have to introduce a lot of the characters before you can get global um so with dazzler they go to find dazzler in like a deviant uh bar slash nightclub where people are doing some dodgy stuff in the background uh and they talk about it with fairly explicit detail um giving you some pretty big hints that there's probably going to be some narcotics going on and maybe some bizarro sexual whatever um and then of course later in the issue when dark phoenix um is mind controlled by mastermind uh also known as what the dark bishop the black bishop of the hellfire film Club. I, don't, um, I don't know which uh, title they gave him. I know that I know that Sebastian Shaw is the, the the Black King, but yeah, I would assume that that's probably accurate. That Wingard was the Black Bishop, but uh, that is, <laughs> but not the Black character named Bishop that shows up in the nineties. 
Right. Um, but yeah, exactly. But when we are looking at this, I mean, there's all sorts of uh, interesting costume choices and interesting choices of dialogue. So again, looking back, and not to mention when Storm is being tortured at one point, it's like, uh, that's an interesting uh, bikini slash, you know, the White Queen's wearing you know, leather thigh highs and a corset and, you know, underwear, and you're going, well, okay. Must have been the 70s. Anyway, um, so t talk us through Dazzler's introduction, because I can talk minutia all day long. Sure, and obviously so can I. And, you know, honestly, she uh, goes along with the team into the next issue. She is just sort of basically introduced. She helps them out a, a little bit, but realizing that they need bigger help. And you can see, and it's sort of established by her character, sort of, she got her own title later. What you realize is the fact that, you know, she wasn't somebody that was looking to do any superheroing. She really just figured out a way to make a buck off of her mutant ability. But clearly the X-Men need her help, so uh, she's willing to help them, which I, I think is is important. You know, again, this is a, the episode, issue 130 is a bit of a stepping stone because then you get issue 131, which is titled Run for Your Life. And the original cover has this sort of ominous look of the White Queen. And it's the first time that she's being called that, I think, because she was just Emma Frost, part of this new group called the Hellfire Club before that. And so there we have sort of this threat of the White Queen that, you know, the X-Men weren't able to get away from the White Queen and the Hellfire Club on her own. They needed the help of Kitty Pride and Dazzler. So, uh, the of course, the only reason why they need the help is because of this mind control of Phoenix. Because she, even before she becomes Dark Phoenix, she's such an incredibly powerful character. I think that they rightly understand that uh, she would really be able to she'd be able to basically put everybody down. And we see sort of a very drastic reaction. And I don't know if it's this interaction. I'm sort of looking at the pages right now. But at some point, Jean takes out the White Queen in a way where she could very well have been dead, but she's this newly introduced character who, of course, is so iconic and important. It's great to see that she isn't. And I think that sort of this struggle that Jean deals with and, you know, just sort of reacting, reacting in a way that she wouldn't have before, you know, where she's violently solving her problems. Uh, Kitty Pride's father is very upset that they took her away and where have they been? And Jean instantly just changes his mind. Something that surprises even Professor Xavier because he's obviously capable of doing that, but that's not the way he usually solves these problems. So they become increasingly concerned about Jean and sort of what's happening to her. And we see as this story goes along, she's not the Jean that they knew, not even going back before X-Men number 100. This is like even before, you know, a couple years ago, you know, she's not really that anymore. Um, do you have any thoughts before, you know, sort of about these couple issues here where Dazzler helps out and then she kind of moves on and she'll come back again later and get her own comic. But uh, what are your thoughts as sort of the next couple chapters of this storyline? Well, as you were talking about with Banshee earlier, I think one of the, the great parts about the X-Men run of this particular time frame 
uh, maybe more so than a lot of other comic books that existed at the time, they did a wonderful job of sort of introducing new mutant characters to the universe and then sort of spinning them off. Like Banshee was a member of the team for quite a while. Dazzler was a member of the team for a little while. I mean, we see um, Maddox, the, I forget. The multiple the, man. The multiple Jamie, yeah, Jamie Maddox, yeah. yeah. We see um, Polaris, we see Havoc. I mean, there are tons of characters that sort of cycle through, even in, down to Sunfire and Thunderbird, some of whom died, some of them um, just went off to do other things. They would periodically reappear. Um, and Dazzler kind of is one of those characters. Um, yes, she had her own comic run for a while. Yes, she came back to the X-Men later. Um, she was what I was talking about with sort of a second string X-Men Yeah, very character. second string, yeah. Yeah, but I think that having, giving those characters, giving them a proper introduction, giving them some personality, giving them some air, so to speak, um, and really making their personalities known really sort of brings it to life in a way that a lot of other comics were, here's the villain of the week and we're going to kill him or, you know, put him in jail or stop them. And there would be one or two issues and you wouldn't get much to him. It would be very simplistic. Um, Chris Claremont really liked his characters and he liked to bring them back. Um, I know, for example, he invented Sabretooth um, and he brought Sabretooth back during the... Um, Mutant Massacre later on, and sort of became the Sabretooth character that we know and love now. Just that rotating and giving those characters their chance to help the team, um, to be there at the time when the team needed them, really helped develop. Not to mention giving the personality to all the different members of the Hellfire Club. Um, you actually get a feeling for some of these guys. Um, and then it continues later, of course, in Days of Futures Past, um, or right before that, or after that, in the run when... Um, the the second Phoenix is on, and you get the you know just the the rounding out of characters. Um, I think, as you say, it comes down to Chris Claremont's use of um, dialogue. But what I also really love is there's a couple of instances within these issues that there's a great Wolverine solo story where he's you know during the course of one of the fights he gets dumped down into the yeah, sewers. Yeah, and that that's um, that's issue one thirty three, which we'll we'll specifically talk about uh, you okay, know, in, cool. in a couple minutes. And by the way, you're you're talking about Chris Claremont creating the Sabretooth character. The interesting thing is that he was originally a villain of Iron Fist. So uh, Chris Claremont right. was writing Iron Fist at one point. There's a point where he's writing many comics, which shows you how much he made in, in comics at that point because he's writing X Men, he's writing Marvel Team Up, he's writing Iron Fist, and at some point he writes the star wars comic too so there's a lot you know i don't know he was he was just churning out the pages at this point um and when we talk about the sort of solo wolverine story it's really the first time we see the wolverine that people like you and myself really mm -hmm. identify with he's the we're really seeing the berserker wolverine which yes there'd been moments of it before in the previous five years of, of comic book storytelling but we really see him his ability to kind of cut loose here but that's the issue after this because the next issue 132 is called and hellfire is their name and they're that's really right. introducing the characters you know kind of up front you know and we have this character tessa who makes her first appearance who we see a lot more later and uh you know we have a sort of a, a cameo of the white queen because i believe she is indeed considered to be uh, passed on at this point. I don't think we see her again until much later, which is so funny because I did not remember that, that she gets taken out during this encounter. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, my God, the White Queen is such an important character. But to the extent of what you're talking about, this issue features 
kind of an interesting thing where the X-Men go and visit their friend, Warren Worthington III, the angel, who was another original member of the X-Men. They need to get away from New York and clear their heads, so they go to New Mexico. So it's kind of great, because it's another thing that when I'm reading these issues, I'm like, I didn't remember Angel being in this. That's kind of fun, that like everybody basically shows up at some point. And, you know, they have these friends, this sort of extended family who can help them out, you know? And uh, this is another one of those issues where it's kind of like, it's a stepping stone. It's connecting some dots. We see that the X-Men are defeated. In fact, the original cover of 132 has some dialogue from Sebastian Shaw where he's throwing Storm into a heap and says, she's the last one. The Hellfire Club has defeated the X-Men. And it's funny because one of the things that I know is that longtime Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter hated word balloons on the covers. So uh, he really didn't like it. He thought that was a very DC thing. And you don't see it that often. But uh, when you do it's always interesting because it's completely unnecessary you're like if you were to look at the picture if you google uncanny x-men 132 just the cover you're like yeah we get it they've beaten the x-men they sure have um but what this does is it has wolverine down in the sewers and it does indeed set up sort of the logan that we know he's not old man logan yet but uh he's we see a lot of those tendencies in fact, the issue is indeed called Wolverine Alone. And it's, uh, you know, he basically takes out dozens of thugs. And uh, I don't know, uh, Brad, when you were rereading this specific story, Uncanny X-Men 133, Wolverine Alone, this specific issue, what were your thoughts about kind of watching Wolverine kind of systematically uh, go through these guys? I loved it. Uh, I thought it was a wonderful return to, um, you know, true to uh, Wolverine's form. Um, it was a lot of fun to read because I remember Wolverine being like that as a kid, but of course that is from the Mutant Massacre days. Um, and I know I read some of these, as you were saying earlier, in the reprints that popped up um, in the old classic X-Men comics, but um, just to quickly hop back, man, I know I'm jumping around, but in the issue where uh, Katie, uh, sorry, Kitty Pride uh, rescues Wolverine from the cage, Wolverine's essentially naked, and um, a Hellfire thug shoots Kitty in the back and tells Wolverine to get back in his cage, calls him a mutie, you know, unless you want the same, and Wolverine pops his claws and says, sucker, you just made the biggest mistake of your life, and yeah. your last. And it, it basically, you're hinted at the brutal, like, oh, you shot my kid, you shot my, the girl who was rescuing me, you shot a kid, prepare to die. And then you get that for an entire issue in um, Wolverine alone, and he just mops through folks. Um, it, it's brutal. He just chops through everything in sight, and then he literally talks down the last guy with the gun, and he's talking about how he's, um, you know, he's in bad shape. And then he basically does that famous, um, you know, it's almost like the Dirty Harry line: "Have you used five bullets or six? You feeling lucky, punk?" And then he basically does that to a Hellfire goon who's basically holding a gun to him, and the guy freaks out, drops his gun, and runs away. It was. The Wolverine that um, I think we came to expect, and as you say, really wasn't necessarily the case back in the day, but again, this is sort of setting him up to be what we know now. Um, one of the other big things that jumps out in this is when uh, Mastermind is putting this sort of spell on Jean Grey or Phoenix and making her think it's another time in another place, um, she's seeing um, Mastermind as her husband, um, and she's wearing, you know, the dark, or sorry, the, the Black Queen clothes, um, and she's become this 
this, I don't know, this alternate dark character that her personality ultimately kind of likes, um, where her powers are sort of let loose. Um, but in this mental vision, speaking of how comics have changed, and it makes me cringe in such a big way that, um, you know, all the X-Men are seen one way or the other. And of course, Storm is, you know, as the African-American character, it, because they are showing, this is, you know, a couple, this it's fantasy like, takes place a couple yeah, hundred it, years it's ago. It's like the 18th, it's the 18th century. I think it's the 1700s, somewhere in that range. Yeah. She's shown as a slave and you go, Ooh, cringe. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, but I don't. mean, look, historically accurate, you know, I mean, you can sometimes revisit uh, earlier time periods and you see stuff and you're like, well, that's not what would happen there, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, in any yeah. case, it's interesting to kind of see all of those little flourishes. But the key point is that we do get to see Wolverine be Wolverine in this episode and this issue. And, you know, a, a sort of a, a slight aside is that this is the first issue that introduces Senator Kelly, who runs for president and is kind of the key focal point in the Days of Future Past storyline only a few months later. And that yeah. was one of those things where I'm like, oh, that's so that's so cool that this is where he shows up. I forget. Of course, it makes sense that he's introduced in the Days of Future Past storyline. Uh, sorry, in the Dark Phoenix saga, because it's so soon to that point. Um, so it's interesting because. You know, Wolverine really gets to cut loose, but uh, as the as the issue ends, he's kind of cornered in a moment, and it definitely ends in kind of like the ultimate cliffhanger sort of moment, where we are led to believe that Cyclops is dead, which I don't think anybody should think for a moment. It's just sort of like a momentary, you know, little little brain, uh, you know, shut down from mastermind, but it's a very significant moment. The idea that Cyclops has died. And I think mastermind as Jason Wingard thinks, Oh, this is how I'm going to get Jean gray. I'm going to get Cyclops out of the way, but that's actually what kind of helps her snap out of it and realize what it is. And that'll be very significant a little bit later in the issue on Kenny X and 134 called too late the heroes where we have a, another supporting character who factors in the next few issues, the beast, Hank McCoy. So we're getting all of the original X-Men except for Iceman because they're like, well, screw him, but they get everybody throughout the course yeah. of this, which is kind of fun. Sort of a nice say farewell to Jean gray in a couple of issues. You know, we're going to revisit some of her past teammates and uh, I, I think that that's fun. And this is kind of a, it's a great story. Obviously, these are all great stories that make up sort of a, a, a bigger epic moment of storytelling. But uh, it, it's so great to be able to, you know, kind of relive them. And, well, that's why we're talking about them, you know, all these years later. And kind of that fundamental moment combined with Wolverine and some assist from Beast that comes in later allows the X-Men to rescue themselves from the Hellfire Club, but that can't prevent the most important thing that happens in Uncanny X-Men number 134, which is indeed the birth of Dark Phoenix. Now, the next issue is called Dark Phoenix, but in 134, we see her in the red suit. We see the change that she has gone through, and she basically crashes the X-Jet. So, uh, Brad, talk a little bit about reading this transformation of Jean Grey from just regular Phoenix into Dark Phoenix as you read these stories. Well, you see, as we're going through this story, that um, as, you, as you 
mentioned to you earlier, um, she sort of throws off Mastermind's uh, control of her brain. Um, and in the process, you know, she she kind of pulls a fast one and in the process um, frees the X-Men and the X-Men then defeat the Hellfire Club. And as you say, Senator Kelly's uh, in the background of that. But um, she then corners Mastermind in, uh, you know, a part of the Hellfire Club in the background. Um, and she pins him to a wall. And she's still wearing the Black Queen uh, corset and crazy black, you know, lingerie wear outfit. Uh, and she pins, using her Phoenix power, she pins Mastermind to the wall. And she's pissed. Like, she is over the tampering. She's over the abuse. And she's found her way out of that trap. And they, and they talk through how Mastermind's powers have changed um, because she finds a mechanism around his neck. It's called the Mind Tap Mechanism, which it, it was a white queen's design that allowed him to project his illusions directly into her mind, which was how the whole thing worked. She destroys that. And then she reduces his brain to mush. She, you know, it shows him the, the infinity of the universe. And he goes mad and he just you know, slumps against the wall and is, is pretty much insinuate he isn't coming back. Then the team makes his escape. Right. She's well, let's talk. Let's, let, let's talk about uh, Mastermind for a second, because yeah, you, this ahead. is sort of a, a very violent reaction to what essentially is the assault, the mental assault, but assault nonetheless. And that's how she lashes out on him. And yes, she doesn't kill him because that would be swift. So she very painfully does this to him and he doesn't come back around for a while, but as I alluded to by Uncanny X-Men 175, we do see him again, and he messes around with some things in Wolverine's life and the issues leading up to that, which is a story for a very different time. And so she's able to do that, and then that's the whole point, that they had Phoenix. If she was in her right mind, the Hellfire Club would never have really existed, and so they're able to make their getaway, but then they have to contend with Dark Phoenix. Right, and I think she goes, in getting that revenge, I think she goes to a very, I don't know, a, a dark place for her, um, and uh, part maybe an aspect of her using her powers unchecked or, you know, being less morally obligated to how she uses her powers um, is part of the run-up and the issues up to this. Um, as she's been tampered, tampered with with Mastermind, um, I think all of a sudden she starts to realize just how much power she has and, you know, just how much she kind of can let loose a little bit. Now, she changes her costumes fairly consistently and quickly throughout these comics. She has the power to pretty much snap her fingers and be wearing anything as part of her Phoenix power. Um, and so she's still wearing the Dark Queen stuff throughout this entire process. Um, and then... At, as you say, at the very end, she transforms and becomes what we call Dark Phoenix. Um, the red suit comes out. And I think it's just that whole um, maybe epiphany for her um, where, and it says the first line of the next comic, witness the birth of a god. And so she really does become another person or another character because, as you said, she isn't Jean Grey. Jean Grey didn't become Phoenix. Phoenix became Jean Grey, as far as the retcon went. 
Yeah. And so this is sort of the moment where she sort of moves beyond Jean Grey and becomes proper Phoenix. Would you agree? Yeah, I absolutely agree. This is the actual Phoenix that was kind of held in check by sort of merging with, I don't know, the personality of Jean Grey. And this Phoenix is the Phoenix that needs to be punished in Uncanny X-Men 137. The original plan is that Jean Grey was not going to die in Uncanny X-Men 137, but I mention him again, editor-in-chief Jim Shooter felt very strongly that once she basically destroys an entire planet, which is coming up very soon as we talk about these, mm-hmm. that she needed to be punished. That you know she can't be allowed to continue being a superhero at that point. And look, I think it's a very valid point from a storytelling standpoint, um, and it definitely makes for a better story. Retcon aside, it, it's still a great tragic ending. But that's the ending of this Dark Phoenix character. If I can quickly Go ahead. do one tiny, tiny little aside. Um, as you know, I'm a massive G.I. Joe fan. We keep talking about Jim Shooter, um, who was, what, the editor-in-chief at the time? Yeah, he was the editor-in-chief at the time, correct. Yeah, the very first issue of the G.I. Joe comic book has, you know, the screen where it has everyone's little picture and, like, their specialty and their password, you know, their their code word at the top, and it's a sort of a wall panel, and it's got all the characters. Well, there was an odd number of G.I. Joe characters, and the one that they made up on the far end is a character called Shooter. And when I was a kid, (laughs) I was always looking for, you know, I was like, oh, they must not have made the Shooter thing and blah, 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 blah. And I was listening, I read a few articles about it recently and listened to a few podcasts about the old G.I. Joe comics. And it was a nod by um, the guys who were writing the comic at the time um, because Jim Shooter loved that kind of thing um, where he would be mentioned in the comic books. And so they, they nodded to him in the book. Anyway, I thought that was a fun aside. No, they that, named the character Shooter. That's very Never fun. And, and talking about, you know, much maligned figures in Marvel Comics, I think the end of his tenure is uh, kind of uh, looked at very differently. But again, he, he ran the Marvel ship when there was sort of a lot of these great epic stories happening. And of course, the beauty of this Uncanny X-Men 135 titled Dark Phoenix is this is the stuff that I love about the Marvel Universe reading the comics that you can't get from the movies. I know there's like this merger with Disney and Fox that's pending and all these things that are going to happen, but you can't get this. When you have something happen on this scale, the Dark Phoenix, it's great. You have one panel where Ben Grimm and Reed Richards are like, hey, what is that? Spider-Man's spider sense is going off of course dr strange is going to send something even on the other side of the galaxy the silver surfer is like oh i think something bad is happening and i love that i love when these comics would feature the other characters and you know the x-men did a great job because the x-men was the best-selling comic so they didn't need to bring in other people to boost sales. So interestingly for storytelling times, they'll bring in Spider-Man or they'll bring in, you know, they'll do a crossover with Power Pack to help the Power Pack kids sell comics. But one of my favorite stories is Uncanny X-Men 205 and it's Wolverine and Katie Power, who I believe her superhero name was Energizer. And it's, you know, sort of like, I love the dynamic. Wolverine is always very protective of young girls like Kitty Pride, like Jubilee, like Katie Power, because I always figured that maybe it would one day be revealed that he had a daughter. But I, I, you know, I don't know that we've ever seen that. I mean, we have X-23, but that's hardly like, you know, him having repressed memories of not remembering a daughter, that sort of thing. That's kind of what I always expected. But you get some great storytelling uh, in that way. But anyway, that's my own little tangent. But I was so excited to see Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. And there's, there's weird, there's this inherent reaction where you're like, 
hey, you're not supposed to say, oh, right, it's a comic book. You can see everybody. It's fine. It's a Marvel comic book from 1980. And it, right. in any case, as we see Gene become the Dark Phoenix, everything comes together as it has been building in these previous issues, the previous six issues. You know, we see... We see Angel. We see the Beast. And again, screw you, Iceman. You're not wanted here. But we also see this sort of terrible, terrible moment where Jean Grey, as the Dark Phoenix, is basically just so hungry that she devours a sun. And we see the impact that has on a planet and all of the residents of the planet, of course, die because Jean Grey, actually not Jean Grey, the Dark Phoenix, has eaten the sun. So this, of course, catches the attention of the Shi'ar Empire and uh, Lilandra, who's an existing character and a oft-times love interest for Professor Xavier. And mm -hmm. this is where the story, it reaches the point of no, no return. You know, it culminates in this very moment. And I think... I think it's great. It's where the tragedy starts. She literally devours a goddamn star. You know what? Where had you seen that in comic books before 1980? Did Wonder Woman devour a star? I bet even Darkseid didn't devour a fucking sun. You know? That's right. And, it, and I, I'm a huge Marvel homer. I get it. But this is a defining moment where storytelling and comics just changed on such a fundamental level. You know? And I, I for one, am just in awe of, of the fact that, you know, something, if you read X-Men number one from 1962, Stanley and Jack Kirby, you'd never imagine that it would go to this point a mere 136 issues later, 134 issues later, I guess, for this part of the story. So, uh, I, I don't know for me, it's, it's just so amazing, uh, to, to watch. I'd say it's downright uncanny. Wouldn't you agree, Brad? Oh, I like what you did there. I like what you did there. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, not only does Dark Phoenix pretty much, you know, put the X, the entire X-Men team down in a, in a series of very quick pages. Um, but then she, as you say, she travels through time and space and everyone sees her go. And then she devours this planet and you get this beautiful write-up uh, about how, you know, the evolution of that planet's life would normally run, sorry, that sun's life would normally run, and you talk about the life on nearby planets, a particular planet, and you see a, a, a panel of an alien race looking up at the sky and, you know, looking at their sun being devoured and, you know, cowering in fear and um, talking about... Um, talking about the, cursing their cruel fate or making their peace with their gods doesn't matter they all die and then it, it literally shows the destruction of the world and then just because there were witnesses she wipes them out as well um and you just but at the same time she feels conflicted about that you see that throughout the rest of this and as you were saying earlier it really ties back to that the tragedy of this whole thing is that she has this insatiable hunger that's been awoken um, by using her powers in this way, and then it just grows and grows and grows, and she can't control it anymore. Um, and that ultimately hints at to, to how the story eventually ends. Um, so before I, I give away spoilers, um, why don't we talk about then how the X-Men team get into space and how 
um, the Shi'ar Empire is involved in the conclusion or in the second half of the story arc for this. Yeah, I mean, obviously, at the end of 135, they're still at the X-Mansion. But when you get to 136, which is called Child of Light and Darkness, the penultimate chapter here, uh, obviously... There is sort of this, you know, there's this moment before they all go into space where clearly the Jean Grey part of Phoenix is trying to maybe have one last grasp at humanity. She goes back to see her parents and they even try to block the Phoenix force. And, you know, Wolverine is prepared to take her out. And she even says, do it. Literally, she says, strike while the human part of me is still in control. Finish me with your claws. I beg you, I don't want to hurt you. And at which point she lashes out and Dark Phoenix is taking the dominance back. So we're seeing all of this. And that this is really, you know, 136. They're still not even in space yet. There's the interest of the Shi'ar and the Landra and everybody's getting closer and it's all converging on this. Again, it's the sort of ridiculousness of telling 17 page stories that it takes so long for us to get to the point where we're actually in Uncanny X-Men 137. But I have to mention, of course, the very funny cameo by then-President Jimmy Carter talking to Jarvis at the Avengers Mansion, where yes. uh, the Beast, in an earlier issue, kind of clicked off the message from the X-Men, so Jarvis doesn't know what's going on. Just little touches like that, of course, are uh, things that strike me as very funny. So, yeah, we, we see the tragedy throughout the course of 136. She doesn't want to be this thing that she's become, but once she has devoured a son, she realizes that it is the point of no return. There's nothing she can do going forward. So she kind of has to come to terms with it as the Dark Phoenix saga concludes in Uncanny X-Men number 137. And that, of course... Is, of course, Phoenix must die. Which is what, now, it, sa what, well, what it says on the cover is Phoenix must die. The original cover, 137, is Phoenix must die. But the title is The Fate of the Phoenix. So oh, you're right. you don't even realize for sure. But the issue starts with the Watcher, or Watu, who is this character who just literally, his name implies, he just watches. He sees what goes on. He shows up at important moments. So if he shows up in a Marvel comic you're reading, something important is about to happen. And it's it's fascinating as far as I'm concerned. And I think that it's kind of it's kind of great, in all honesty, that uh, they're like, oh, yeah, so the Watcher's here because you're about to read something important. Now, this was a double-sized issue. Oftentimes, double-sized issues would be, you know, number 50, number 100, whatever, 200, 250, all that stuff. But this is just like, nope, too much story to tell. It's got to be double-sized. And at this point, it kind of starts off, and Jean realizes, I think she's kind of come to terms with, eh, this is going to be the end of the road, I, I think, because I can't let the Phoenix Force do what it is on the path towards doing. And so what we have is the fact that the X-Men all materialize aboard Lalandra's ship, and we have sort of her, her Imperial Guard are there. Some characters who are great and we've seen in plenty of other comics uh, after the fact, you know, Guardian and some of the others. And we see con uh, some conference with the, the Skrulls and the Supreme Intelligence of the Skrull Empire. So it's an intergalactic story. It's not just, hey, one of the X-Men has gone bad. Let's put her in jail. No, it's, it's basically like an interstellar kind of convergence of all these alien races and all these interests and 
the end result is basically that once again the X-Men get their asses kicked. As I mentioned, happens many times throughout the course of this storyline that the X-Men get their asses kicked. And yeah. Jean Grey, uh, you know, shows up as in her Marvel Girl costume, sort of a little throwback and kind of a nod to what's about to happen. And she realizes that, you know what, they've decided that, uh, you know, she, she can't go on, we should run. But then the Phoenix is reborn and she lashes out. So she realizes tragically that the only end that this story can have is she has to kill herself, which is a, sort of another thing. She basically positions herself in front of a gun that wipes her out. And I guess the human part of her is able to trick the alien part into standing there, that sort of a thing. And this version, this entity does indeed die. We see other, other Phoenix Force, other times that show up later in comics. But for all intents and purposes, especially to people reading in the summer of 1980, this is the death of Jean Grey. So uh, I, I sort of meandered through summarizing 137, but give me your thoughts, Brad, on sort of all of this, the way the story builds and the culmination of the self-sacrifice of Jean Grey. Well, as you say, I mean, I think I was talking about it earlier, and as you were talking about, I mean, it really has built up this whole thing where she really has truly lost control. It's almost as though when she's describing her need, now that she's tasted the ecstasy um, she, it's almost as though she's an addict or a drug addict. Um, there's some analogies that are made throughout the way that's written that she really just can't say no. She can't stop. She, um, it, it's, it's beyond her. It's consumed her. And I mean, it, in, in retrospect, it makes the way they retconned it, as I mentioned earlier, by saying that um, Phoenix became Jean Grey. There really is this competition within the Phoenix as to who is going to have the dominance. Um, which is particularly interesting given that she's not Jean Grey. But I, I think at that point they didn't know that. They retconned that in later. Um, but I think that that was a really clever retcon. Um, but it, it really does show just how much the Phoenix took on Jean Grey, that at the very end um, she and Scott are the last two X-Men standing against you know this combined arms alien force and... It's only then when she's worried about Scott and, you know, she's talking about how much she loves him. It's that love that really drives her to to make that self-sacrifice. And again, um, I don't think that, I mean, you did see that to a degree in some comics, um, you know, Captain America crashing the shit or, you know, saving him or freezing himself to save Bucky. You do see that noble sacrifice, um, but, you, you know... At this point um, in, in American history, it, it, you know, things aren't necessarily a positive thing post-Vietnam War and all these other things. I don't want to get into the, the greater sure. dialogue, but, I mean, here we do have, as we said before, a Marvel favorite. Um, and the fact that she is really sacrificing herself to save the universe because she knows that if she doesn't, um, you know, Phoenix will consume everything or will lose control and will become this awful force. Um and she, you know, her love of, of, of Scott, of the world, of everyone, she or of the universe, she really, you know, makes that sacrifice. And it really is a, it's a major deal. And if you were going to, as we said earlier, I mean, this whole story arc sort of builds it up, her loss of, you know, her build of power, her loss of control. Um, if you were going to end a character, I think this was, you know, a really emotional and excellent way of doing so. Um Again, I didn't read it when it was brand new, so I sort of I picked it up a little later. So it, it kind of, in my mind, it wasn't as noble an act. But you know, rereading it recently and thinking about the context, 
this is a huge deal, as you were talking about earlier. And um, it, it really did set a tone for X-Men comics for years and years to come. And that, in return, you know, impacted other comics. Um, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think that sort of the the stakes and the severity and just, the, like I said, the self-sacrifice, all of that really it reverberates throughout the Marvel Universe. But, you know, honestly, storytelling for comic books in general. And, you know, I think the 80s were really a heyday for comics. I'm not a DC fan, as I say, but in the 80s, they had the crisis on Infinite Earths. They had huge storylines trying to sort of, you know, maybe streamline things because they had been around twice as long as Marvel. You know, they had been around for 50 years where Marvel had basically been around for 25. And they were like, yeah, let's try and try and maybe, you know, trim a little bit of the fat. They started doing, you know, the first ever really reboot of a series, the John Byrne Man of Steel. So you have all of these things that, that start to happen, I think, because of this. And it's interesting because really the X-Men is a very different team shortly thereafter this issue because of all of that. And, you know, we talked briefly that some consider Uncanny X-Men 138 to be a part of the Dark Phoenix saga. It's really kind of like a, it, like I said, it's a coda. It's called Elegy. And in the issue, Cyclops leaves the X-Men at the end of the issue. He had been the only mainstay from the original team and the current team. And he left, you know, he still obviously would show up in the pages of X-Men, but he was not in consistently for a few years in all honesty. And it's sort of a very sweet remembrance of Jean Grey, this issue 138. And we do finally see Iceman. I guess he's deemed worthy of attending her funeral. And, mm -hmm. Jean's parents are sort of given this remembrance of Jean by Lalandra, which I believe the sort of that that what she they're handed, I think, factors into Rachel Summers being able to summon the Phoenix Force. But that's a very vague recollection from 30 plus years ago. So I might be wrong. But the key to the end of 138 and why it's so important, you see all of these endings. You see the death of one of the original X-Men. You see another original X-Men leaving for the first time ever. But then you see pulling up the X-Mansion, Kitty Pride gets out of a taxi. And clearly it's like, yeah, look, there's always going to be X-Men. They're going to come and go. And we'll see where that goes from here. I don't know. I mean, it's just to be able to, you know, basically binge read the, the rest of X-Men Eternity, it, it definitely gives you a different context. At the time, I can only imagine what people thought. You know, like what's going to happen to the X-Men? Is it is it basically is is it really over? And then as you're reading it and then you're starting to feel like, no, there'll, there'll be more. And some of the greatest storylines were to come, including just if, you know, three months later, they start the Days of Future Past storyline. So it's really such a fundamentally important X-Men story, but it's an important comic book story. And honestly, it's an important literary story because. Comic books are a part of literature, even though some people would definitely balk at that notion. But it so fundamentally changed what people thought comic books were capable of. And this level of death, I don't believe, had ever actually happened before. And at least for a few years, <laughs> it had some reverberations. Uh, before we, uh, we finish up, I just want to quickly give a little footnote that I, as I said, was reading these stories the classic X-Men issues. So classic X-Men 43 is what reprints Uncanny X-Men 137. And Chris Claremont rewrote, not rewrote, he wrote a new story in 1989 that was published in there. And it's basically Gene's sort of essence 
on the moon after she kills herself and it sort of sets up the fact that she comes back later it's kind of an interesting that's def, that's nothing more retcon than that you know being stapled onto the end of the story but there's also kind of running through these issues this backup story about cyclops in an orphanage and mr sinister who fascinatingly was a character that was designed to have been kind of the projection of a little boy who wanted Scott Summers to be his friend in the orphanage and didn't want him to leave. So that's why he has such a dopey name like Mr. Sinister. And that storyline was completely abandoned because Chris Claremont left the X-Men within two years of these stories being written. So uh, they went a different way. But it's so funny to just read because I'd forgotten that whole kind of backstory. And so that I mentioned in the course of the story of Dark Phoenix, it shows us the impermanence of everything. Jean Grey is not permanent. The death of Jean Grey is not permanent. Cyclops, I know, has died and then undied in more modern comic books. But again, I don't read those. So for me, they don't count. But... What will always count is the uh, incidents of Uncanny X-Men 129 through 137, the Dark Phoenix saga. Brad, do you have some final thoughts before we bid adieu to our audience? Uh, only because I think it really ties in with this whole conversation. Um, you're talking about classic X-Men. I also read some classic X-Men. Um, I, I picked some up in a, a yard sale when I bought a, a, a ton of comics, and I sort of got them at the end. Um, didn't realize what they were and then read them and they turned out to be some of the best comics I got at, in that, that, that stockpile. Um, but the one that I got was for issue 100 um, where, you know, Phoenix first appears um, where the spaceship crashes um, and you have that. And the story that's told on the backside of that, because of course the classic X-Men comics had the reprint at the beginning. And then if you read it backwards from the other side, um, it gave you another story having to do with the main story, sort of a side story. And it was the story of Phoenix seeing uh, Jean Grey's sacrifice and talking about how it inspired, it inspired the Phoenix Force to want to be better or was a noble act. And so it basically put Jean Grey in a cocoon um, and stuck her in the bottom of the lake, which is, of course, how she comes back later, and then talks about how it assumes Jean Grey's personality. And, of course, that issue would have come out way after all of this. Yeah, of course. But I think it was a very early way of um, explaining some of the retcon of her Yeah, and later. the cocoon is how Jean Grey originally reappears in Avengers 263 and Fantastic Four 286. Uh, the Avengers and the Fantastic Four sort of find this cocoon at the bottom. I believe it's at the bottom of the Hudson River. Uh, it might be somewhere else, but again, I haven't read these comics in 30 years. And yet I remember the issue numbers, right. interestingly enough. And uh, so that's why we have that cocoon that's sort of basically how X-Factor number one comes about, sort of the rebirth of the original X-Men. But now that, my friend, is a story for a very different time. Um, That's right. But I don't know. I welcome feedback from listeners of the Black Cast, from the old man Morin army, uh, anyone who wants to uh, agree, disagree, expand upon the thoughts that we had about these stories. You can find me on Twitter at ChristianDMZ. The Blackcast is at B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. And we're The Blackcast on Facebook. And Brad, uh, where can people find you? I know that uh, the podcast is on Facebook, correct? That is correct. If you go on Facebook and you look up Cast Dice, C-A-S-T Dice, D-I-C-E, 
Um, you'll find a page called the Land O Misfit Toys, home of the Cast Ice podcast, and that's me. So if you message there, uh, I, as always, seek your feedback. Um, guys, as I said, this is the very first uh, episode of sort of talking outside of toy soldiers, outside of talking about gaming in general. Um, and that's why it has a different name. It's uh, Storytime with Old Man Warren. Um, if you'd like to hear more of these or don't, um, please let me know. Uh, I will be talking about things like Stephen King's It uh, and uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer shortly. Now you might say, but, but Brad, those are books. Those aren't comics. Why are you talking about comics? And it goes back to what Christian was saying earlier. Um, I've always, you know, as a primary school teacher, I've always seen the importance of comic books, especially in young readers um, and helping them learn to read. And it really is, you know, reading game books and comic books is really how I learned to read, um, <laughs> much to my mother's chagrin. So um, <laughs> please let us know what you think of this. Uh, Christian, please take us out. Yes, absolutely. And of course, if Blackcast Nation would like to hear more of these stories, you know, we recently did kind of a remembrance of the introduction of Spider-Man's black costume. And this is a natural progression of that. I love doing stories like this, you know, episodes like this. But let us know if you want those. And please make sure that you follow and you like you friend you all that stuff to Brad because uh, if that sounds interesting to you I mean I'm interested in hearing an episode about the Stephen King's it you know basically we can bring together our two families here and they can possibly discover other podcasts and don't worry the black cast always talks about nerd stuff but it's not always quite so nerdy and quite so in-depth but uh, if you've enjoyed our contributions and you're a fan of Brad's, we hope you find us at bladcast.com, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T dot com. Well, for me, I will see you next time on the Blackcast. And I will see you on the next episode of Cast Dice, where we will be talking about the Fallout video game and the new Fantasy Flight board game. So until then, have a good one. Take it back. You know time crawls on when you're waiting for